to the Bible and the English major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I'll keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. to see an article version of this and future podcasts, you can go to my website at marinjo.com. There, you'll find citations to the work I reference, as well as links to other interesting articles on the topic. Are you ready for some romance? In today's episode, we'll explore how and why John's story of the woman at the well is related to the ancient betrothal story of Rachel and Jacob. If you haven't listened to episode one, Why God Invented Emojis, I recommend you do that before listening to today's episode. It will all make ever so much more sense. Today's story is found in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 20. I will be doing the Bible story speed run for you very soon. But if you're the kind of person that likes to read your stories for yourself, it's time to do it now. Genesis chapter 29, 1 through 20. Jacob and Rachel at the well. Da, 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 da. On my mark. Get set. Go. Jacob is in foreign territory. He's looking for a wife, hopefully a cousin of his. And he comes to a well, and at the well, there's this big old rock that protects the water, and the shepherds have to work together to get the rock off. So he hangs out with the other shepherds there, and he says, hey, do you guys know my uncle Laban? And they're like, yeah, he's a good guy. Things are good with him. By the way, this is his daughter, Rachel. And Jacob sees Rachel and says, hey, guys, can I have a bit of privacy, please? They're like, no, we can't lift the rock off yet. And so Jacob's like, well, she's cute. And he single-handedly lifts the rock off of the well, waters the flock of his cousin Rachel. He then covers her with kisses, cries, and says, I'm your long-lost cousin Jacob. And she goes, whoa, I gotta go tell dad. She runs home to tell Laban. Laban runs back, covers Jacob with kisses, and says, you know, come stay with us. So Jacob goes and stays with them. They have a meal. There's a betrothal, like Jacob's gonna work seven years to marry Rachel. And hooray! Here's what you need to know. This is the part where I explain some context. Here's an idea for your next party. Divide everyone into groups. Have them act out a bar brawl. Even if the groups work independently, you will notice elements common to their creations. Changing their acting assignments to a duel or questioning a murder suspect will also generate shared characteristics. That's because these are type scenes, recurring, extremely recognizable bits of narrative with predictable elements. Today's story of Jacob and Rachel is an engagement or betrothal type scene. Just like we know someone is getting a chair to the face in the bar brawl, when ancient listeners heard just the first few details of today's story, they thought, Jacob and Rachel sitting in a tree, 
K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, and well, you know the rest. Robert Alter first observed this betrothal type scene in six stories of the Hebrew Bible. I recommend Michael W. Martin's article, where he notes larger narrative patterns and builds on Alter's work. He adds six elements to the five Alter observed and renamed the stories full-on, quote, betrothal journey narratives, end quote. Martin also makes a point that gets my English major blood pumping. The most compelling part of this narrative pattern is that each story somehow deviates from the design. It's in the deviation that the crux of each story lies. When my car hums along according to its expected pattern of behavior, I don't think twice about it. When there's a new noise, I grip the wheel and pay attention. It's the same way with a good pattern-following story. As they say in English major school, when the story veers, open your ears. We've landed on today's story because it's another one John alludes to and patterns his gospel story after. Clever John knew the betrothal journey narrative elements and included them in the woman at the well story, so that, as Paul Duke puts it, quote, when Jesus ventures into foreign territory and meets a woman at a well, the properly conditioned reader will immediately assume some context or overtone of courtship and impending marriage, end quote. But why? No worries. This is not the podcast that claims Jesus married anyone. Let's review Martin's betrothal journey narrative elements in the story of Jacob and Rachel and their parallels in John's gospel. Then, maybe we'll see the point John is playfully making about Jesus. Let's get on with the show, the part where we really dive into the story. Betrothal Journey Narrative Element 1 The groom enters foreign territory, compelled by family. We find Jacob in Genesis 29-1 far away from home, but in his mom's hometown. He has just stolen the birthright of his brother Esau, and now tricky Jacob is fleeing for his life. He's also been sent away by his parents to find a wife specifically one of the daughters of his uncle Laban. Jesus, likewise, leaves his home in Galilee to go to Judea in John chapter 2. Like Jacob, Jesus journeys to a place filled with family, in this case, fellow Jews. A deviation from the pattern is already beginning, though, because Jesus then leaves the family place, Judea, for a third location, Samaria. Martin explains that Jesus leaves Judea after he angrily clears the Jewish temple of moneymakers in chapter 2 and to avoid the Pharisees. Like Jacob, family conflict motivates Jesus to leave. Also like Jacob, Jesus is sent by his parent. Remember that he had to go through Samaria in verse 4? Because that's not geographically true. It seems Jesus is following the will of his heavenly GPS. He's compelled by his Jewish family and his heavenly father to leave Judea for an even more foreign third territory. 
Narrative element two. This one's easy. They both meet a woman at a well. Narrative element three. A gift or service is performed. In verse six, Jacob learns his beautiful cousin Rachel is the one who approaches with her flock, and he tries to send the other shepherds away for a bit of privacy. The shepherds need to water their sheep, though. They explain that removing the rock covering the well requires the efforts of all the shepherds, and not everyone has arrived. Rachel must be some kind of wonderful, because once Jacob spies her, he single-handedly removes the rock. Do you remember that the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus' outlandish claims at the well by asking if he's, quote, greater than Jacob in John 4.10? This is the part of Jacob's story she's referring to, as well as familiar first-century interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. These interpretations claim that for Jacob, quote, the well overflowed and the water continued to overflow all the time he was in Haran, end quote. That's his mom's hometown. Jacob, indeed, has a way with wells, and he's happy to serve Rachel with it. But Jesus' ways are even greater, as the gift he offers in fulfillment of this story element is living water. Narrative element four. Someone needs to draw water for someone else. Jacob draws water for Rachel's flocks. However, in John's betrothal narrative, this detail is alluded to, but doesn't actually happen. Listen up. There's clunking in the engine. Jesus asks for a drink of water, but the Samaritan woman is wary because of their ethnic and religious differences. In alluding to this element, but not fulfilling it, John again highlights a primary point of the story. Jesus and the Samaritans are not of the same people. Narrative element five, revealed identity. In a dramatic moment filled with weeping and kissing, Jacob reveals to Rachel in verses 11 and 12 that he is the son of Rebekah, Laban's sister. Jacob has found the one he seeks. Cue the music. In the same striking fashion, the Samaritan woman realizes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then dramatically reveals himself as I am. Using the exact phrase God takes as a name in the Hebrew scriptures. Hence, Joel B. Green and his co-editors point out Jesus is, quote, applying the divine name of God and God's authoritative presence to himself, end quote. Jesus frequently names himself this way in John's gospel, and it tends to polarize folks, either leading to faith or accusations of blasphemy. Either way, it is good climactic drama. Element six, the woman rushes home. In Genesis 29, 12, Rachel rushes home to tell her family who she's discovered at the well. In John 4, 28 and 29, the Samaritan woman returns to the city and does the same thing. That was quick. Five elements to go. Element seven. The woman's family rushes out to meet the groom. In verse 14, Laban runs out to meet Jacob. 
He covers his nephew in slobbery kisses and asks him to stay with them. In verse 40, Samaritans from town come out to meet Jesus and also ask him to stay. Element 8. A betrothal in conjunction with a meal. Genesis 29, 15-22 describes an extensive betrothal arrangement. Jacob will work seven years to marry Rachel, and a marriage feast is mentioned in verse 22. The betrothal in John's gospel is not literal, but we do see the split families of Israel coming together, especially in the following few elements. John also alludes to a meal delivered to Jesus by the disciples. Element 9. The groom stays with the family. Children may result. Here's where Jacob's story veers from the pattern. Usually the stay is for a short time, but Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Rachel's sister first. Jacob then agrees to stay another seven years so that he can marry the one he truly loves, Rachel. The pattern shift here highlights that tricky Jacob is now tricked. Jesus stays with the Samaritans for a more conventional two days, but has no literal children. Verse 40 tells us, however, that, quote, many more believed because of his word, end quote. We are talking spiritual kiddos here, people. Element 10. The groom returns home. Jacob finally returns home with both wives, two concubines, and tons of kids in Genesis 31:28. Jesus returns home too to Galilee in John 4:43. Element 11. The groom is welcomed at home. Jacob is welcomed by his brother Esau in Genesis 33, and Jesus is welcomed by the Galileans in verse 45. So, Where's the pattern deviation in John's betrothal narrative? Though we think it's kind of icky that Jacob marries his cousins, keeping it all in the family was crucial to the ancient Hebrews to avoid the temptation to follow other gods. Remember, according to tradition, that's the mistake the Samaritans made. According to the narrative pattern, Jesus journeys from home to where his extended family lives. But when in Jerusalem, Jesus furiously clears the temple and tells the profiteers to stop making my father's house a marketplace in John 2.16. Then, to avoid opposition from the Pharisees in 4.1, he heads back home toward Galilee. Clunking engine! He can't head home without a betrothal! Pay attention here. Jesus is compelled to head the Samaritan way home, and everything we expect to happen in Jewish territory happens in Samaria. Martin summarizes, quote, Hence, the boundaries of Jesus' family are extended to encompass Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. Recognizing this innovation to the pattern is, as with other betrothal narratives, the key to getting the story. End quote. Here are a few more clues that John has created a betrothal story. First, we've already noted references to Jacob in the gospel story. John is jogging the memories of his early readers. Another clue is the Samaritan woman's marital history. 
Jerome Nairi writes her situation is, quote, calculated to evoke echoes of courtship meetings, end quote, exactly like Jacob and Rachel's. It's a bit tragic that some commentators have used her history as a lesson against loose women, when the point is actually about how Jesus is the figurative bridegroom, calling the Samaritan people and all of us back to our true love. John has been building this theme for a while now. In chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana. In a horrible insult to first century hospitality, the wine runs out. Jesus steps in and turns water in six Jewish purification jars into the best wine at the party. Mary L. Colo points out that the literal bridegroom then gets credit for it, indicating it was the bridegroom's job to provide the wine, a role that Jesus steps into. In addition, in chapter 3, mere verses before the story at the well, John the Baptist declares himself the friend of the bridegroom and Jesus the one who has the bride in verse 329. Just as Jesus replaced the six purification jars with the good stuff, he now replaces the woman's six imperfect partners with himself. Jesus is number seven, the symbolic number of completeness in the Hebrew Bible. Thus, in his gospel, John says Jesus is the replacement for Jewish ritual and the one true God. Why does John use marriage and betrothal language for all of this? Colo explains, quote, In the Old Testament, the covenant at Sinai between God and Israel was frequently described using the image of betrothal and marriage. At the wedding in Cana, and I add in these first chapters of John, Jesus is described as the presence of a covenantal God, the bridegroom of Israel, end quote. There's that Bible word, covenant, again. It's an agreement or promise. We've mentioned God's covenant with Abraham, but there's more than just that one in the Bible, because the people of Israel needed reminders of God's faithfulness along the way. A broad overview of these covenants is God promises to belong to his people, and God's people promise to belong to God. Sounds like a marriage, right? John creatively takes this established metaphor for mutual belonging and amplifies it using symbolism, illusion, and a patterned betrothal narrative to proclaim that God keeps his promises. God will be faithful to the church no matter how often we give ourselves to lesser things. Jesus, the bridegroom, stops at nothing, not even death to bring his truly beloved people to himself. John alludes to the story of Hagar to reveal the presence of a covenant-forming God who sees. He alludes to Jacob and Rachel to reveal Jesus as fulfilling God's promise to seek and save all of God's beloved ones. Next time, we'll unpack John's use of a symbol that shows God to be the one who dwells intimately with us. That's all three members of the Trinity in one story, friends. Brilliant. Since we are talking about marriage, I need to 
say a huge congratulations on one month of marriage to Matt and Linnea Feig. You two are adorable, and I hope many good things for both of you. I also want to thank you for listening, everyone, and for all your support and for sharing. Keep it up. We are growing, and we're headed towards a dog, and my kids are still talking about it. So keep that up. Please follow me wherever you are listening to your podcasts and seek me out on the social media places. All the links are in the description. I am thankful for all of you and hope you're enjoying your summer. See you soon. Bye.